From the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Bracely, presented by a Cloud Guru, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Aaron, uh, just myself this week. Uh, Brian's uh, off on an airplane somewhere uh, today, uh, but wanted to uh, really fascinating guest today and probably something honestly some topics we talked about in the early early days of of cloudcast and so this this episode is almost a bit of a throwback episode and an almost an update episode in many ways so, so we have ray watson ray is the vp of global technology for macergy did i say it correctly first of all you did. You said it right. <laughs> it was a whole conversation before. before it's good to be Go done ahead, Ray. As a throwback guest. I mean, I think I don't know if it makes me feel old or if it makes me feel happy to be a throwback it, guest. It, it makes this compliment. podcast feel old. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, so Ray, go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, first of all, sure. So, I am, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a, a technologist at a company called Macergy. That is a 17-year-old uh, communications and cybersecurity company based in uh, Dallas, Texas, with offices all over the world. Uh, myself, I, I'm a graduate of Purdue University, so I'm a Midwest Texan, I guess I could say, uh, there. And I've been at Macergy for about 10 years. So the company is about 17 years old, and I've been there about 10 um, of those years. And, and, so, and your title was VP of Global Technology. Sounds like a cool title. But what what is the what is the kind of day to day of a global technology VP? <laughs> what does that mean? That's a good question. That's a funny question because you know when you ask people this uh, in social environments, they always tell you what their favorite part of their job is, and they never actually tell you the mundane day to day things. So I should be no different. In Fair enough. Um, that question. I'll, I'll tell you the the part of my job that I'm the most passionate about is. Uh, I work alongside our account managers and our global solutions engineers to deliver unique uh, solutions for our customers uh, all over the world, primarily using hybrid networking, which used to be a technology called MPLS and VPLS, but now today is really a mix of MPLS, VPLS, and uh, SD-WAN internet technologies. Uh, a global unified communications platform that does voice and multimodal communications across devices, and then uh, our cybersecurity business, which is a very rapidly growing managed detection and response uh, business. So what I'm the most passionate about and what I spend most of my time doing is doing in, uh, international travel or travel in North America to meet with prospective or current customers to provide them solutions. Now, we have solutions that are in the layer four and layer three of the OSI model, which I happen to know your listeners are nerdy enough to know what that means. But we're fascinated with layer seven, the application layer. So everything we ever deliver and everything we ever have delivered is first and foremost focused on application performance for the customers. So as applications have changed over time, uh, the actual global backbone and the global platform has been able to evolve to address uh, those types of changes in the application world because unlike traditional telecommunications companies, we're not fascinated with layer one, the physical layer, or layer three, the network layer. We're fascinated with putting guarantees around application performance. 
Okay. Okay. And and Ray, help us out then. We're going to kind of do maybe a, a bit of a speed round, which we do with guests every once in a while here. here. We haven't done a kind of an independent trends show in a while, and I think you're one of those good connectors of some of those trends we may have, maybe haven't had an update on in a bit. So I want to step back and kind of pick your brain here. Um, so um, what is kind of... Because we, we don't just don't hear as much buzz around them anymore. And, and I admit, too, because historically this this podcast tends to be emerging trends. We, we tend to, to follow startups. Um, those startups, you know, get the VC money. And there, there just hasn't been as much action, I'll use that term, in some of these areas. So so what is your immediate thoughts on, on SDN, Software Defined Networking? Well, sure. So uh, Software Defined Networking is and has been and continues to be uh, an absolute game changer in the customer data center world where you're actually deploying uh, gear into data environments. And some of that has been uh, really changed around the orchestration of things like containers and microservices and a lot of the things that you talk about when you talk about AWS deployments. Um, but the biggest change for SDN is its migration into the wide area networking. And you know the company I work for, Macer G, we're particularly well-suited to discuss uh, software defining wide area networking because of the fact that uh, 15 years ago, we started offering our customers the ability to basically shape their bandwidth on demand. So you could turn up and turn down a a circuit from 100 meg to 50 meg literally within seconds, okay, for a disaster recovery issue or because of a bandwidth uh, congestion issue or because of a natural disaster or because everybody started watching the World Cup or whatever it is, right? Uh, Being able to make those bandwidth changes on demand for both the port size and the QoS uh, gave us a very early view as to what it would be like to have a completely software-defined network. So obviously the whole point of SDN is the abstraction of the control plane and the data plane, but it really ultimately is about providing agility. It's about being able to change things on the fly based on either an API or a preset of conditions, right? So that agility, that of being able to make changes uh, based on changing business needs, or more importantly, able to automate those changes based on business needs. And it could be something as crazy as a camera that counts how many cars are in your parking lot and knows how much bandwidth needs to be allocated per employee, right? It could be something as as simple as that, or it could be something way more in depth where you're making intelligent decisions uh, about routing so as to avoid uh, either issues on the network or or even security type um, concerns. And all of that piece is being automated. And we've seen a massive, massive change in this. The the most fundamental way that the difference for an end user or one of your listeners in the enterprise is the emergence of something called network function virtualization. Now, NFV is actually a subset of SDN, and SD-WAN is also <laughs> a subset. And so we, among all of those acronyms, what NFV really is, is it's the ability to deliver what used to be ASIC-based hardware services or appliances uh, being, being able to put those on images that, confusingly enough, are called VNFs. Okay, so you have VNFs running NFV, but those images basically run as standalone uh, uh, compute cycles on a hypervisor-capable device. So in the MacerG world, I can deploy a two-core, four-core, or eight-core device in your office in China, and if you suddenly need a session border controller deployed there, 
rather than shipping it through customs and waiting, you know, three to five days and then worrying about somebody actually going physically there to rack and stack it and cable it, I can push that software image within seconds. And more importantly, if you're my customer, you can do it yourself. And we've been doing this for almost five years where we allow customers to use session border controllers or firewalls or routers or routers for the folks that are listening in Europe, I guess I should say. <laughs> uh, we've been letting them do it for five years, so we've got a certain organic knowledge about the use cases around that. And one of the biggest use cases, which really surprised me, was that people hate dealing with customs. The, and uh, you know, being able to get equipment in and out of customs based on encryption requirements or, or whatever the local rules are is a real big pain. Being able to ship and turn on those services uh, literally you know, with a few clicks of a mouse or a few taps on an iPhone uh, can really be a game changer. So there are people in our space who are out there saying SD-WAN is a way to save a ton of money, okay, to, to move from traditional QoS deterministic networks over to best effort internet uh, over the public internet networks to save money, money, money. In our experience, what it really is about all of these technologies is about providing more agility because the competitive landscape has changed now so much that every industry, whether you manufacture headphones or you do medical data, every single industry out there now is using IT as a competitive advantage. And, and being able to have that agility in your data center and your wide area network ties directly into that. And you, so a quick follow up to that then as well, because this is this is fascinating to me in that when we used to really do a lot more shows about SDN and, and NFV, actually, we did a bunch of shows in the context of, say, OpenStack, for instance, way back when. Um, is is SDN, SD-WANs, all of these technologies, are, are they, because you mentioned automation as one of the big examples, are we building them into um, – the existing orchestration layers, like they're stand they're standalone products, but being or you know orchestrated through API calls. Tell us a little bit about the architecture. Like, kind of take it maybe one level deeper as well as when it comes to implementing something like that. Well, sure, and and this is something that for the telecommunications carriers is very different uh, than than my life experience because at Maestrogy, when we went to build this global network and we knew we were going to provide Ethernet everywhere in the world and we knew we wanted bandwidth on demand, there was no off-the-shelf software or open-source software that we could use for that orchestration, that OSS, BSS functionality. So we basically wrote our own, and at the time, uh, an internal tool that over time has become OpenStack compatible, that has built in the API calls, but either because we were very, very lucky or we were very, very smart, and I'll argue there was a little bit of both, uh, we built a platform where the employees and the customers and the database systems inside the company had the same API calls to make network changes, the same security controls, the same audit controls, so that it was very easy, for example, when the iPhone came on the scene, to suddenly let customers do self-provisioning on the iPhone because everything was already built on these APIs that we were using internally. Now, today, there's a flood of companies out there that are offering similar uh, orchestration software, and we do work with some of those companies uh, in order to use some of their services or their BNFs, but we're still running our own internal uh, uh, SD-WAN controller, SDN controller, uh, so I'm a little bit biased about that. Now, I do go to a lot of conferences where I hear about 
a lot of the regulatory bodies that are that are uh, somewhat fractured on certain standards that are out there for this. Uh, there's certainly a lot of commercial off-the-shelf software. I think some of the largest equipment manufacturers have realized that if they can own this space, they could own quite a bit more space as well. So there's a little bit of a land grab. But in the meantime, at Majorgy, what we're doing instead is we're spending our time and our cycles, our lab cycles, on evaluating additional VNFs, okay, so that we know what's coming down the pipe next because our chairman and CEO, Chris McFarland, has given us a very specific mandate that he wants a customer to be able to go into an app and pick a network function out of hundreds, okay, think like the iTunes uh, store on your iPhone, and literally be able to tap one of hundreds of these functions and it suddenly be deployed on their network in a secure, auditable, and compliant way. So we're constantly looking at new VNFs from your traditional uh, providers like Cisco and Fortinet, but also a lot of up-and-coming folks, and then even open-source tools as well, because we want to certify which VNFs can run on the network, which ones we can put our absolutely insane service-level agreements behind. If we have some SLAs that are that are that are a little bit different than most carriers, uh, and then put them into the store and kind of let the the uh, marketplace decide kind of who's going to lead in that space. So that's what we're spending a lot of our time on, rather than thinking about OSS and SS. I will tell you that in the VNF space, when we first started uh, p- deploying these VNFs, a lot of the uh, hardware companies were shipping us non non DPDK optimized images, and they were just basically ports of their ASIC-based uh, software. So if you think, if you're really old and you remember the Atari 2600, remember that really bad Pac-Man game that they used to have? <laughs> the, the one that almost notoriously took down the company, it was that bad. <laughs> yeah, so that was a port, right? A port is when you take code from one type of processor and try to plat- move it over to another. And so when we were first getting these images, we were getting a lot of ports and they were not optimized for Intel's uh, DVDK. They, they couldn't even get line speed. And then more importantly, maybe not more importantly, but more importantly to some of the folks that I work with, they were also wanting to charge you exactly the same amount for an image that they would for your for the hardware box with a fan and an ASIC and RAM and everything else, right? Over time, that's changed a little bit. The competitive marketplace has gotten to a point where uh, we really won't even look at images unless they're optimized, unless they can certainly get line speed, unless they can uh, handle uh, core limitations, uh, all of the pieces that we need for our orchestration side. Uh, and also, in addition to that, there has to be a cost savings. If you are an enterprise customer with 500 locations and you're used to deploying physical riverhead steelhead boxes and suddenly we're now going to image what those appliances used to be and run them on an intelligent Ethernet uh, device in your office, uh, there needs to be some cost savings and some optimization for you. It doesn't need to be the only thing, but it certainly needs to be one of the things along with that agility that we were talking about before. So that's sort of a a big area of change for that. Now, in addition to that, in addition to the NFV and SDN, there's also a lot of things that our customers are telling us about and that we're seeing because we participate as employees on their network and we can see monitoring of their networks, et cetera, that are out there that are literally changing the game as much as the SDN is changing the game or the SD-WAN and NFV is changing the game. Uh, because of what the customers are doing. And probably the biggest one of these, which we are now in year seven or eight of, 
is something called the stampede. Have you heard of the stampede before, Aaron? No. So, so help everyone out a little bit, a little bit with this. Because yeah, you, so, you mentioned it, and we, we, were, we were kind of brainstorming on some topics, and, and, and you, you mentioned it, and it's stampede in quotes, or in, uh, yeah, in quotes, and I was like, hmm, okay, we need to talk about that. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so when AWS, or Amazon Web Services, first started allowing customers, uh, IT-savvy customers at first, to spot their own machines in Amazon Web Services, uh, at, at the very beginning, we had very early adopters that started turning up services for uh, either their application development or uh, basically for, for, for playing with new uh, potential websites or something like that. But in the last few years, we have seen it's not, it's not even a migration. It is an absolute stampede of customers moving workloads to shared infrastructures uh, like Amazon Web Services, which is the the, the four thousand pound gorilla, so to speak, in this space, but also Microsoft Azure and three sixty five and IBM SoftLayer, and with that, I know you've had other customers talk companies talk about this in the past. There are some amazing uh, ROI benefits to moving these workloads, but there's also some really big trade offs as well. Uh, one of the ones that I heard a, a previous guest talk about was the migration of things from layer two to layer three services and making that seamless, right? Another one that we hear about all the time is the security implications because now your chief marketing officer who thinks she has a CCIE because she once installed a router at home, she can actually spin up an AWS with, with customer traffic on there with or without IT involvement, right? Which has a certain set of uh, data control concerns regardless of where you are in the world. Um, and, and, and another is actually just moving workloads from traditional data centers and their architectures and their change management processes to something that is literally point and click. Now, the good news for Amazon and IBM SoftLayer and, and Google and even Salesforce.com is that the returns on the Stampede are so massive. Uh, they, they're such a game changer for these businesses that it's going to continue, right? So we're, we're seeing a quintupling of the total number of packets going to Amazon Web Services about every quarter, right? And that is both uh, private connections on net and off net connections. And there's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, but but it, regardless, it is it, we've never seen a movement quite like this. When we think about people moving to Blade servers uh, 10 or 15 years ago, that was a slow, gradual replacement of a lot of equipment that was end of life or maybe that was near end of life. In this case, uh, very, very few global enterprises are building standalone data centers and less and less are actually going into co-location facilities because the ROI on going to 365 or Azure or Amazon Web Services is, is so incredible that people are just literally deploying that and going to these shared compute models. And so you bring up a really fascinating point there with, with – so. Masergy seems to be this this kind of intersection of, of hybrid cloud networking of security and and we've had guests on that you know there's very there's a lot of different approaches there especially when it comes to this AWS or really just public cloud in general trend um, so so does this mean like the, what you're doing is more of a services and consulting organization you mentioned R&D and development and so is it developing products and and wh- how do you think this uh, also works into the future of these trends as well. Sure, that's and that's a great question. I mean, at our core, we are a managed services company. So our customers expect, uh, in some cases demand, certainly should expect 
uh, complete end-to-end guarantees and complete end-to-end white glove treatment of their packets, right? So, for example, uh, on our native hybrid Ethernet platform, I can give them one millisecond jitter anywhere in the world, which is absolutely unheard of, right? I mean, because of certain theaters of the world where, where bandwidth is different. And I can back that up with proof, right? Uh, what we're doing in regards to the Amazon Web Services uh, and these other shared infrastructure providers is we have private fiber connectivity to a variety of different providers all over the world, okay? And the customers don't necessarily even need to be concerned with that because what we've done actually in the past year and a half is we've gone to our customers and we've given them uh, guarantees for their application connectivity and performance, even to AWS and even to these third-party providers, okay? So that's AWS and, and IBM SoftLayer and some other folks in that kind of space. And to my knowledge, we're the only global provider of hybrid networking that will guarantee that performance. Almost every other carrier out there, no matter whether they're multi-billion or multi-million dollar size, they will always say, well, once it leaves my network, it's, it's all bets are off, right? The internet is a best effort environment. But we're actually guaranteeing our customers that they will have latency parameters, jitter parameters, and reachability parameters to these services. And so it is an incredible value add to companies that have struggled because they've migrated things out of their own data centers, which they've controlled, into these AWS data centers, which they have less control, although they do have some visibility. They don't necessarily have as much control. And by guaranteeing that performance, it really differentiates us uh, from the pack of traditional carriers. And, and you asked the questions kind of specifically about where would you put yourself in that consultant versus service provider space. Uh, I want to be very clear. We operate uh, the world's largest independent global backbone. We, we completely 100% control uh, our own routing. Our, we have a single VGPAS, and, and we provide Ethernet in about 100 countries today. So we're providing end-to-end performance over Ethernet in about 100 countries today with the ability to deliver to another 52. If somebody can bring me a business case to open a pop in North Korea, I'll very funnily take that up the, up the chain and probably get made fun of for it. But anyway, um, that is actually our core business <laughs> sure. service. Go ahead. And anywhere in, anywhere in the world that you provide, you use G for multi-protocol label switching or virtual private LAN service, uh, that hybrid Ethernet experience, anywhere in the world is going to have the same exact performance, which is also very, very different. Because most people expect a different experience, you know, when they're in Beijing than when they're in Tel Aviv, right? That's just, we've all been conditioned to understand and believe that the end-to-end packet experiences are different wherever you are in the world. We're actually kind of throwing that on its ear by saying, we'll give you the uh, same uh, performance guarantees, the same proactive monitoring, the same Ethernet handoffs, no matter where you are in the world, right? And so that's a big differentiator. And that tends to attract some of the most uh, I, would, I would almost say data snob type customers, companies that really know the value of differentiated QoS. So certainly companies that do uh, high tech manufacturing. Uh, we have a ton of law firms. We have financial services companies, but it's really all over the map. It's anyone who really needs to have end to end application performance and has struggled in the past with managing multiple relationships and people finger pointing about outages and all this other nonsense, right? We take all of that completely away and say, if you've got 50 sites with me, I'm going to proactively monitor all 50 of those. I'm going to open trouble tickets if I see things that may affect your application performance on that end-to-end experience I'm giving you. And I'm going to email or call you and tell you 
what is actually happening on your network before you ever call or tell me about that. So it's a, it's a, it's a complete white glove into an experience, regardless of whether we're talking about data, uh, unified communications or SIP, uh, or our managed security product. So that's sort of the way that that entire experience is built in. Yeah. And, and what I see really happening too is, is there's almost been a trend away from a lot of this in networking over the years. And now everything cycles, everything's coming back around. And there are certainly those, those customers out there that need something like that. And I want to kind of change gears uh, for a second here. And because this, I think this is super interesting. I'm really interested in kind of the experience behind it a little bit as well. So you recently spoke at Black Hat in 2017. Um, so tell everyone, first of all, you know, what was your topic uh, about, but also like, what was that experience like? Yeah. So uh, for those of you that don't know, Black Hat is one half of what's called the Hacker Summer Camp in Las Vegas every year. It really started uh, with a, a hacker conference called DEF CON. And then uh, about 10 years into DEF CON, they started holding the briefings for corporations uh, offsite at a different event. But over time, what's ended up happening is, is that Black Hat is the more enterprising corporate focused uh event and then right after black hat ends it immediately leads into defcon which is usually at a little bit less fancy hotel <laughs> across town uh and that's the one that you hear about when you hear reporters talking about oh don't ever get on their wi-fi or oh don't ever use the, <laughs> right, don't right. ever use the don't go anywhere near bring, the place <laughs> bring a burner cell phone because there's fake you know i am captures everywhere and everything like that and so those conferences kind of go hand in hand right and uh and so but we at the black hat conference uh, which was corporate focused uh we presented a couple different sessions the one that i presented on was really about the history of hacking uh five generations of uh, cyber threats going all the way back from MIT in the 70s through Captain Crunch and the Freakers uh, in late 70s, uh, all the way up to BBSs and warezing and piracy and all this other kind of nonsense uh, throughout the 80s. And then really building to where we are today, which is an environment where cybersecurity professionals are facing threats from script kitties, from competitors, from cyber gangs, and even from nation states, right? Even from entire countries. And so that's really what we talked about. And actually, there is a a video recording of that, uh, if anybody's interested in the history of hacking, there's actually a video recording of that on my Twitter profile, which is at rayredacted.com. Uh, and it'd be, if you're particularly interested in that, but that was sort of talking about the history of that. Now, we've also got employees in our services business that came from uh, the nation state space, so to speak. And we also had another speaker that was talking about information warfare, specifically what companies or countries are doing. Uh, to each other to try to influence uh, outcomes. And the reason that we know a lot about this and the reason that we're kind of in this space, so to speak, is because one third of our business is really ultimately about helping customers uh, secure their networks and their network assets. And a traditional, a typical G deployment for a customer would be they usually have something already, a firewall, an intrusion detection system, an intrusion prevention system, but it's not being deployed correctly. Either it doesn't have the right personnel watching it, it doesn't have the right features enabled, which is shockingly common, uh, or they're just simply not getting uh, usable and actionable intelligence about the threats on their network. And so our managed detection and response units, which uh, we have uh, concentrations of employees in Texas, in Western Europe, and in Asia, will come in and basically help them integrate those services and come up with customized plans and mitigations for different types of attacks. So, you know, when you talk to people in cybersecurity space, they say things like, 
oh, I tracked 6,000 scans yesterday. Well, those are probably port scans, and most enterprises don't necessarily care about a, a port scan because we can, you can put a device on the Internet tomorrow and capture a lot of those. What people do care about is advanced persistent threats that are operating inside their networks, uh, certainly zero days, uh, certainly anyone who's actually having to do with what's called dwell time so that you've actually got folks inside the network that are exfiltrating data. And our MDR is actually built to be very similar to the way we do the network side, uh, very hands-on, very much an extension of your staff uh, to help you basically mitigate from some of these, these issues. And this is a truly a global product. And one of the biggest things that's been surprising to me for the last four or five years that I've been doing this is, because I actually kind of thought this was going to go away, but the folks at Gardner told me it's not, we have a massive talent shortage in InfoSec or in information security, right? Depending on who you ask, there are millions of unfilled jobs uh, in InfoSec right now, okay? And there's a litany of reasons why, and we can get into college degrees versus, uh, you know, issues around diversity employment versus a proper education versus employee retention. But the bottom line is most enterprises cannot staff their own security departments adequately. If you get somebody that's really good, they typically leave, right? If you get somebody that's, that's, that uh, is really, really brand new, they don't necessarily know how to use the systems. So in many ways, we've actually found a niche by becoming a force multiplier for companies that probably should have four or five InfoSec professionals, but we make it look like they have 50 or 60 or however many folks that are actually you know, kind of allocated on there. And that's been the biggest kind of surprise to me was is that employment gap, that talent gap, uh, has been has been one of the biggest drivers uh, for managed detection and response. And then, of course, if we're also providing the network uh, and the voice, there are certain synergies that go over each other. But the vast majority of our security customers are only security customers. And that has to do with the fact that in many cases we kind of start there and then over time kind of build into the network and the voice side. So it's very, very rapidly changing, though. This That field, the, the cybersecurity field, has evolved so much, even in the last, let's say, six weeks, because of the types of threats that are changing, because of the types of exploits that are changing, uh, because of the profit motive is changing, right? So if we had done this interview six weeks ago, I would have told you that the worst thing that companies need to be dealing with now is ransomware. I will tell you, as of today, it's actually crypto jacking, which is when your web browser is taken over to mine cryptocurrency in the background, because... Uh, until very recently, it was very obvious when that was happening to an end user. But more recently, the software has gotten sophisticated. And instead of using up all the CPUs, it only uses like 30% of the CPUs. And they may never even know, right? But from a network standpoint, there are certain concerns there. And that evolving, changing time frame, the, the way that those threats change, requires a pretty large threat intelligence uh, group that's monitoring law enforcement feeds and commercial feeds and open source feeds and basically keeping up with these threats so that we have very rapid incident response to uh, when we see something that's never been seen before, for example. And so that's that's actually kind of an exciting part of our business, and it's kind of a fun, you know, nerdy kind of part of our business. And I, you know, if you if you've ever considered going to Black Hat, I would tell you, do not be afraid. It's definitely <laughs> right. Uh, worth your Stay time. Stay away from DefCon, but go to Black Hat. Well, you can you can even go to DefCon too. I just wouldn't jump onto the public Wi-Fi because they have something called a wall of sheep there where. They embarrass people who transmit their logins and passwords in the clear over the Wi-Fi. And you don't ever want to be on the wall of sheep, actually. That's, That's just a general life uh, life tip. Yeah. And so in, in 
just random thing that just kind of popped in my head too. When you're talking about the crypto jacking, um, it reminds me of, so I, I had a, a buddy back in my IBM days, so back when, um, uh, kind of giving up some of your CPU was that was the thing. Right. And then I had a buddy who he was really diehard into SETI, um, and, and doing mm-hmm. all, all the, the SETI things way back when. And so like he, he actually had like his, 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 and this is pre laptop days, you know, his, his work computer at IBM running SETI in the background. And then he had another machine and, you know, on his desk and that was running SETI as well, whenever it wasn't doing anything. And anyway, just, just as a oh, kind there, of, a, no, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you this story. This is this, that's a crazy story. You just, you just mentioned because before SETI, there was something called distributed.net, which was a screensaver that you could run on your computer to help break uh, encryption blocks. Right? I that remember was the original that. Yes. Application, okay? yes. Yep. And then somebody came along and said, this is not good use of math. We should be doing searching for extraterrestrials, right? right? right. So SETI was this massively popular uh, screensaver, really, was the kind of the way that they packaged yeah. it, right? And if you think about it, what happened next is fascinating because distributed.net and SETI had a baby, okay, that eventually had a baby with BitTorrent. And that's how we got Bitcoin. <laughs> the, <Right. laughs> the blockchains that we face today are really global networks of computers yes. that are solving math problems, okay? Not to search for extraterrestrial intelligence, although there's still a lot of folks that are doing that, but, but they're mining uh, and generating blocks uh, basically you know, as, part of, as part of Bitcoin or as part of the other 1,400 alternate cryptocurrencies that are out there. So it's fascinating that you had, a, you had access to an IBM uh, uh, set terminal. I bet you if you went back to it today, there's probably not the same terminal, but I bet you there's there, there's something doing blockchain related functions right, uh, in, right. in that same. Well, it, it, it's it's funny how you know the the technology evolved from let's go find aliens to let's go find the latest music to oh I just want to make some money. <laughs> Yeah, let's make up some internet magic money. Yeah, for sure. That's right. <laughs> and so that, but it is. And you're right. You, as you said it earlier, the more things change, you know, kind of the more that they stay the same. And so, uh, and by the way, blockchain is one of those areas that uh, the vast majority of our customers and companies are either curious about or they're exploring certain applications. Uh, what's called DApps, uh, distributed applications, uh, and we certainly know a lot about that that piece because. Uh, some of our customers are actually doing uh, things in both the blockchain. I put that in the same category as Internet of Things, which is kind of still uh, uh, not quite being adopted as fast as some of the analysts said, but it's certainly on its way up. And then, of course, the biggest one of all, the one that's going to really change everything for all of us is artificial intelligence. Right. So, you know, in the next 20 years, this podcast might be uh, an AI version of me talking to an AI version of you and we can just be on a beach somewhere. Fair enough. All right. That's awesome. With that, I think we're kind of at our time here. Um, So just wanted to say uh, again, thank you so much for your time, Ray. Um, Where can everyone kind of follow you, follow what's going on? I'm going to put some links in the show notes, but but where can everyone kind of stay on top of, of what's going on? Well, sure. So at Mace Review, we do have pretty active social media channels, uh, both on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, et cetera. We, we drive a lot of people to our Twitter channel, our Twitter feed first, which is at uh, Masergy, and that's M-A-S-E-R-G-Y.com. Uh, if you just want to learn about some of the things that I'm talking about, we do have a, sh- a series of short videos on our website, which is Masergy, M-A-S-E-R-G-Y.com, and you can actually look at uh, some tutorials, some really short webinar-type videos about hybrid networking and about a lot of the things that I've been talking about. Uh, and and it's certainly that's the, where we want to drive people is to the website. That's macerg.com. 
Awesome. Thank you very much, Ray. Um, on behalf of Brian, who wasn't able to make it this week, um, I wanted to say thank you to the listeners, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more podcasts, show notes, and everything social media. And visit acloud.guru for all your cloud training needs.